Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, a new podcast from the American Scholar magazine, bringing you conversations with the liveliest voices from the worlds of literature, the arts, sciences, public affairs, and the other far-flung corners of culture. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and this week we've got an episode full of super heroic feats. From the cosmic voyages of the Fantastic Four to the clearance teams removing unexploded American bombs from the fields of Laos. Our interview this week is with Ramsey Fawaz. He's an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and his book, The New Mutants, digs into the queer subtext of the comics of the 1960s and 70s, like the Fantastic Four and the X-Men. Though, as he'll tell you, a lot of the time, it's not even subtext. It's right there, flaming on the page. So what makes the Fantastic Four, Marvel's first family, the first queer family of comics? What is queerness anyway? What does the thing have to do with being transgender? What's so feminist about the X-Men? And what do all of these comics have to teach us about democracy, social movements, and creating political change? This interview was recorded before the terrible shooting in Orlando, Florida, on June 12th that ended in the deaths of 49 people. Almost all of those killed at Pulse Nightclub were from marginalized communities in this country. Gay. Black. Latino. Latina. Queer. They're the same people whose dreams and politics were embodied by the mutant superhero teams that Ramsey talks about. In the wake of yet another hate-fueled tragedy, it seems that the message of the comics, recognizing that what binds us together as people is that we're full of differences, and then actually negotiating those differences without killing each other, is exactly what we need to build a better world. These comics are about dialogue, and hope, and finding common ground with everyone around you, even mutants with crazy weather powers, or blue-skinned shapeshifters or walking yellow rocks. If they can do it, can't we? So here's Ramsey Fawaz on the outcast superheroes of his book, The New Mutants. So I wanted to thank you first for sitting down with us and uh, for giving me an excuse to get a Marvel Unlimited subscription and read a lot of comics. Oh, it's a must. It's a must. (laughs) It was great. So every comic book character has an origin story. So what's your comic book origin story for your love of comics? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, when I was a teenager growing up in Orange County, California, I was coming into my own as a young gay man. I was also a Middle Eastern immigrant to the U.S., and in many ways I felt very alienated in kind of a more white, homogenous Orange County setting, even though, you know, I also lived a very privileged life in other ways. And um, during the period of my seventh and eighth grade years, when I was like between 12 and 13, um, I went through a really, really difficult time of being bullied, of struggling to be accepted at school. And I remember seeing an advertisement in a magazine um, for the 35th anniversary issue of the X-Men. And I remember just being dazzled by this amazing holographic cover and these characters that just fascinated me and I knew nothing about them. And I remember picking up that issue, going home, it was the beginning of summer, and sitting by the pool and reading this comic book and feeling an immediate and intense identification with the X-Men. And so it was one of those rare moments where I felt so deeply connected and I felt like I belonged in the world for a moment. It didn't solve all my problems, let's just say, but it was um, it it gave me a certain kind of strength and a kind of confidence in myself that fantasy could be a resource for me. So did you hold on to that love for comics all through high school and college? Oh, I did. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was crazy. I would buy double issues of comics and I would take one issue, read it, put it away, and then I would cut up the other issues. I collaged every single um, square inch of the walls of my room, including the ceiling. And it did run through college and it was around the time that I was a student at UC Berkeley as an undergraduate that my relationship to comics changed. I sat in one day on the first class uh, of a course on the 1980s that was being taught by a woman named Kathleen Moran. And um, this class blew my mind. I had never seen a scholar analyze popular culture. I had really been convinced, you know, as a 19, 20 year old that like you only studied high culture. And in my junior year, Kathy asked me to be a teaching assistant in a course on consumer society. And about halfway through the course, she said, hey, listen, I want you to give a lecture on comic books and consumerism. So, you know, I prepared this whole lecture on the history of collecting and on speculation markets and the comic book industry. And she looked it over. She's like, this is so boring. Like, this isn't you. She said, I want you to do what you do best. I want you to do a close reading of some important comic book storyline um, using the tools of consumer culture theory. So I remember thinking, you know, I'm obsessed with the Dark Phoenix saga, this incredibly famous storyline in the history of the X-Men, in which the character Jean Grey becomes this cosmic entity known as the Phoenix. She also loses control over the Phoenix at some point, becomes an evil version of herself, and then eats an entire star in a distant galaxy. And this causes all sorts of problems ethically. I reread this storyline in light of what I'd learned in this class, and I thought, wow. This really is a storyline about consumerism. It's about overconsumption. Like, this makes a lot of sense in a moment in the 70s when Jimmy Carter is talking about overconsumption, the energy crisis. And then I also thought this is very gendered. There's something going on here. Why is it that a woman is losing her mind and doing this? And so the deeper I dug into the story, the more I realized that it essentially was an allegory for American consumer society. So I give this talk and she looks at me afterwards and she's like, this is it. This is this is the project that you need to do if you go to grad school. So how did you deal with the volume of comics and how did you decide which stories to work on, which characters to work on? 
So I decided that the project was going to be chronological from the late 50s all the way through the 90s. I started by simply reading about what had happened in the late 50s, early 60s to comics. Why was there this massive transformation? What led me to that first, by the way, was the X-Men. I was obsessed with the X-Men. It was the thing that I knew the most. And I wanted to know initially when I first started, did I identify with the X-Men just as as an individual? Was it just because I was gay and I loved the X-Men and I felt affinity to them? Or was there something about the comic book itself that lent itself to people like me identifying with it? When I went backward in time, it led me to the 60s when superhero comic books shifted their viewpoint to start speaking to minorities, to people who felt like social outcasts. So I was like, well, where did that start, right? It basically was just like a treasure hunt. So what I would do with each chapter as I took on these different shifts is I would take a time period like the 60s and I would read widely. I would find like 10 different series that were popular in this moment. And I would read the first 15 or 20 issues. What are the trends that I'm seeing? Do some comic books reflect these trends more than others? And then I would take those ones that I found most interesting and I would read more than that. I would read like 50 or 60 issues, which is like six or seven years, right? I wrote seven chapters for my book and I read something like four to 7,000 pages of comics for every chapter. Wow. So at the end of the day, as hard as it is to say, the only way you figure out which texts are going to be the focus of your study is by just reading a lot. You just read widely and you read intelligently. I also read tons of scholarship, primary sources from each historical moment. I was reading political documents. I was reading literature and watching movies. I wanted to know the cultural environment that these comic books came out in. It seems like comics are being taken more seriously in academia and in mainstream culture, along with stuff like TV. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? It is the moment of comics right now. It's pretty amazing to see this explosion. And I think that it's happening for a number of reasons. Um, I think, one, humanities programs are struggling in this contemporary environment to retain students, to manage enrollment. There is a massive anti-intellectual sea change in U.S. culture in which people are critiquing the humanities for being useless, for not training students in the kind of skills they need to be in the job market. So humanities programs are suffering, and they're realizing that one of the ways that they can retain students and show their relevance is to be engaged with what is happening in contemporary popular culture, to teach courses that are about things that are circulating in young people's lives, to remind them that they can study the objects that circulate around them. I think the other reason is simply because we now live in a world that is so deeply saturated with visual and textual imagery combined that we can no longer stick our head in the sand and act like you can teach people only about text or only about images. So the minute you look at comics, you can't help but talk about film. You can't help but talk about radio. And that's kind of ironic because comics are very old media. They're just like hand drawn. And the interesting thing about comics, too, is they're almost one of the most accessible mainstream media there are. You know, they're cheap. You can pick them up at the store. You don't always have to know the whole storyline. And yet, on the other hand, academia and academic writing is pretty inaccessible. (laughs) Do you feel like there's a tension there? You know, I do and I don't. I think that academic writing gets a bad rap for being inaccessible. But here's the thing. 
Every field has its language. Corporate America, the nonprofit world, engineering. I mean, name any field and it has its own language. And I'm always intrigued why academic writing is um, attacked more than other fields. I do think the question of accessibility is important because I think a lot of the academic scholarship has often simply said, I don't need to explain myself to ordinary people. I'm writing X, Y, and Z book or essay for a very limited audience. I just don't think that we anymore have the luxury of not explaining what it is that we do. So as an example, what do you think a particular academic term is, you know, that you use in your book that's really important? Oh, I think the word that is always key is the word queer. Can you define queer for us? Yeah. So queer, its original idea is just something that is strange or that is twisted. And over a long history, the term at some point became used as a negative derogatory term thrown at people who are perceived as sexual deviants or sexual minorities. In the 1980s, during the height of the AIDS epidemic, the radical political organization ACT UP the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, reclaimed queer as a kind of radical, rebellious refusal of straightness, of all of the assumptions of more traditional gay life. And they said, we don't want to be gay or lesbian. We don't want to be straight. We want to be queer. We want to be something outside of all of the strictures of these norms. Simultaneous with this, we have something that we would call the rise of queer theory, which is academics who started to say maybe sexuality is not reducible to gay versus straight or just gay and lesbian. So queer becomes a useful theoretical term for thinking through a massive range of alternative sexualities. And it is an academic term that I'm not willing to let go of because I think it describes so many of the unusual, non-normative, non-traditional forms of embodiment and sexuality that we see in superhero comic books. One of the first queer families is the Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah. And your main argument about them is that they seem on the surface to be very normative. Yeah. So what is so queer about the Fantastic Four? I think what is so queer about the Fantastic Four is that it visually presented to readers the most traditional, normative, nuclear family you could ever imagine. Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, and Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. Her brother, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, and then their best friend, Ben Grimm, the Thing. It looked visually as though they were a mother, father, and their two children. The reality, of course, is that they're not that at all. They are a chosen kinship network that have been thrown together by circumstances that are unusual and unexpected. They take this unauthorized rocket flight into space, and they're trying to do what is the most normative, traditional thing you could possibly do. They want to beat the Soviets in the space race. So they go off into space, and they're bombarded by unknown cosmic rays. And when they crash land back on Earth, they realize that those cosmic rays have altered their molecular structure so that they've all gained these newfound powers that make them into mutants. And they decide collectively that they're going to use those abilities to defend humanity. The image of a seemingly nuclear family penetrated literally by unknown mysterious rays. I mean, what could be more queer than this? So their powers constantly unravel the expectations of what their bodies are supposed to be. What I find fascinating is rather than finding this slipping and sliding of gender among all four characters as a problem, the comic book thinks it is awesome. 
The 60s is an incredible moment of gender instability in the modern United States. And the Fantastic Four was obsessed with that. And it played with some of these ideas about malleable or flexible gender through its characters. Well, what about the thing? So he's the least human looking of the group. Unlike Mr. Fantastic or the Invisible Woman or the Human Torch, he can never not look like the thing. Yes. Most of the time. So he's like a a walking yellow rock, basically. And yet, he's the superhero that Marvel picked for its fan group mascot. Yes. And then as a pinup for this giant yes. New York comic yes. convention poster that you put in the book. So he's not exactly photogenic. So what's yeah. so compelling about the thing? The thing is this model of an ideal masculine white American man who is transformed into a huge orange rock, which you would think would make him more masculine. But in fact, his rockiness alienates him from other people so much that it makes him extremely emotional. He expresses deep sadness that he is at a disjoint from people, and yet it is because he becomes more vulnerable that people love him. So the comic book played on the idea that we are all divided beings inside. So in the 60s, one of the ways of talking about being transgender, which at the time was thought of as being transsexual, was the idea of being trapped in the wrong body. Many people don't feel trapped in the wrong body, but that's one way of talking about it. And the comic book creators use that language to talk about the thing. He's not actually transgender or transsexual, but the idea in the comic book is that he feels trapped in the wrong body. But the irony is that he never feels quite right in anybody. So in a way, his gender becomes uh, fluid and unusual. I think that that's why readers loved him so much, because he embodied what it meant to feel ambivalent and confused and torn up inside. Speaking of fans, you talk a lot about how fans sort of influence the comics and the comic writers through their fan letters, uh, which were printed at the back of each issue. So what kind of relationship did fans have with the comic book writers beyond these conventions? These forums, the letters pages, became this amazing place where fans dialogued with each other. They responded to each other every month when they would read someone's letter and with creators. And so creators had unprecedented access to what readers thought of their work. And they also realized as they read these letters that, hey, like we actually have to respond in the way we do our creative work to these fans. So what is an example of a fan response to some characters in the Fantastic Four that ended up significantly changing the storyline? One of them is the debate that that ended up unfolding between fans about the role of the invisible woman, who at the time was called the invisible girl, right? She becomes invisible woman in the 70s. In the early to mid-60s, there is a fan who writes in and says, the invisible girl is kind of meaningless in the comic book, and I think you should just eliminate her. She doesn't do a lot. She's always fainting. And what's really the point of having her in the comic book? And in a way, he had a point. Because up until the first year or so of the comic book, she was really a shrinking violet, and she didn't do much in the comic book, and she always was getting caught by villains, and she herself felt kind of useless. So a flood of letters come in that the, that the editors did not expect. And people are basically like, that's ridiculous. This character is so important. She's so crucial to the team. In fact, what you should do is make her more powerful. In a way, the letter writers kind of kept insinuating, like, haven't you ever heard of a woman's movement? Like, haven't you ever heard of the idea that, like, women matter and that, like, women exist in the world and they have, like, power? 
And in issue number 22, about two years into the series, they grant her two new powers. And what's amazing is that within the next 10, 15 years, you know, the Invisible Woman becomes one of the most powerful people in the Marvel Universe. So to get back at the comic world that is most colorful and sort of set you on your own journey, the X-Men. So they're a big evolution, let's say, from the Fantastic Four. Yeah. We have this band of mutant outcasts who come from really wildly different places. There's a Kenyan weather goddess, a teleporting blue Bavarian, a Canadian wild man. (laughs) It's like relentlessly diverse. Right. So they come from all of these crazy places and they have crazy different abilities, but they come together. So Mm -hmm. why do they come together? Because one thing that they share across their differences is the experience of being outcasts, of being perceived as alien to the human race. What distinguishes it from the Fantastic Four is this. The Fantastic Four is obsessed with the idea that what binds all people in the galaxy is that they have shared human qualities. The X-Men says, actually, there's no such thing as a universal humanity. Many, many people are left out of the category of the human. And so now we have to negotiate our differences and not merely race, class, gender and sexuality, differences in taste, in style, in upbringing. Like there are so many differences between these characters. And the comic book is an extended meditation on what it means to negotiate difference. And I think one of the biggest differences that you talk about within the X-Men is you mentioned Jean Grey earlier, the Phoenix, Mm -hmm. one of the only women on the team, along with Storm. They seem to come from totally different backgrounds and have very different opinions on a lot of things, but they're still best friends. Can you talk about their relationship? Absolutely. Storm is everything that Jean Grey is not. She is completely liberated in her own way. She has lived on her own, untethered by romantic attachments. She's a 19-year-old, like, weather goddess. And they bond over the fact that they are two powerful women who want to live life differently than what all of these norms have expected of them. And so in many ways, the X-Men of the 1970s, that comic book becomes focused extensively on women. So all of the characters that we think of in the X-Men, like Wolverine, who became really, really popular, that didn't happen until the 1980s. Like the comic book in the 70s was about women and they introduced so many women in the comic book. There's all of these women that enter the world of the X-Men in this period. And at the core of all of those relationships is the friendship and the bond between Jean and Storm. And that extends all the way to the present. I mean, that relationship has played out over four and a half decades now. In the epilogue of your book, you talk about how Captain America died in 2007. And Uh I was reading that the X-Men all died last year, and they sort of rebooted. Marvel has this new, all new, all different thing. Yeah. Um, So I wanted to ask you how you thought those deaths were different. How is Captain America's death different from the X-Men Mm. dying and being reborn? It's a great that's a great question. You know, historically, superhero comic books were about difficult things. They were about criminality, violence, threats to the world order. But overall, they were incredibly playful, open minded about the world. They were not about death, destruction and devastation. And in the 1980s and after, there is an incredible turn to some of the darkest aspects of our society and culture. So I think that death, dying and genocide can be deployed very intelligently, politically, to talk about real-world violence. I have to say, I think that the long story arc of the death of Captain America that Ed Brubaker wrote is just a brilliant use of the figure of the dead superhero. The comic book argues, look, the U.S. government is 
emaciating citizenship itself. It's narrowing what citizenship is so that when Captain America dissents against the U.S. government, instead of being seen as saying democracy is about arguing, it's about disagreeing, it's about us fighting over what we think is right, instead he is seen as a traitor. I think the mass deaths of characters like the X-Men is not so brilliant. I think that it is dangerous. The comic books are saying... We love diversity, we love heterogeneity, but these characters are just so diverse that we never really know what to do with them. So every time they become too complicated, we're going to kill all of them and start from scratch. Speaking of diversity, part of Marvel's new all new all different campaign is to introduce alternative representations of all these superheroes. Uh-huh. There's a huge variety. I couldn't even begin to list that. I know it's pretty extraordinary, but it seems a little bit superficial. Yeah. So, can you talk about the difference in diversity between the original X-Men and these, yeah. these new diverse versions. Yeah. So here's what I find interesting. The contemporary world of Marvel Comics is indeed extremely diverse, but so, so, so was the Marvel Universe in the 70s. To me, there is a major difference between simply stating the fact that there are lots of people in the world and they are all different, and then actually setting those people into dynamic engagement to see how they negotiate their differences. I would call that other thing heterogeneity. Heterogeneity is hard. It's not only about the fact that we're all different. It's that we have to, like, negotiate those differences. We have to deal not only with differences of race, class, gender, sexuality, and ability. We have to deal with the fact that we have differences in philosophy, in taste levels, in experience, in what we want out of our lives. There are so many layers of difference that that in itself is what should be interesting, is how we negotiate them. And that's how you produce a democratic world. On the other hand, I want to say I think it's incredibly valuable for people of all ages to pick up a comic book and to see a superhero who is like them. But I think if the only way we can feel connection to others is to identify with them, then we should just give up because the world is not like you. Nobody is like you. The point of the world is to learn how to engage with people who are not like you. And I think that comic books in the 60s, 70s, and 80s did exactly that. They trained readers to encounter a world that was not like them and to still feel affinity and love for that world. And that is what I call world making. Yeah, it definitely seems like in the X-Men of the 70s, a lot of that world making happened through conversation and dialogue. There's like whole pages where they're just talking at each other or to oh, each other. Yeah. Right. And and now it doesn't really seem like there are that many text bubbles. Oh, I this is something that really frustrates me about contemporary comics. Nobody actually works through anything. There's no engagement. There's no discussion. It's really absurd. It's like everyone is an ideologue. You know, like you said, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, there are characters who have conversations for six, seven, eight pages. There is a character in the comic book called The New Mutants in the 1980s, Rain Sinclair. She's raised in a Catholic family that tells her that her mutation is a sign of the devil. And she encounters another character who's also religious, who has a completely different view of what God's will is. And they get into this amazing debate where she's like, we should just all accept that we're evil. And he's like, why would you believe that? They actually have a debate. They're like sitting on a bus, like on a bus ride, like ordinary people do. And they have a debate. And it's not that she changes her mind in one debate, but it sinks in what he tells her. She's like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm not evil. Like, maybe I can have compassion for myself and other people. 
this is, I mean, this stuff blows my mind. This is where popular culture is at its best. It is presenting back at us our own capacity for engagement and dialogue. And I think that contemporary comics don't really do that that much. They rely more on, well, I'm glad that I'm seeing myself represented. I don't really care what the substance of that representation is. I don't really care what debates or dialogues that character is having. I, that to me does, is not substance. Do you ever feel like rolling up your shirt sleeves and diving in and writing a comic yourself? <laughs> You know, I don't. I, I I know it seems funny. I don't. I I really believe that scholarship is a form of world making. I think that's part of why I really struggle against the idea that scholarship gets a bad rap. Well, thanks again for chatting with me. Thank you. You too. This was lovely. Ramsey's book is a great read, even if your X-Men history begins and ends on the silver screen, and you only have a vague understanding of why the Fantastic Four are so fantastic. I'd highly recommend it. Our next guest is journalist Karen Coates, who wrote a piece for our Works in Progress section in the magazine about Bellyache, a project on global hunger she's working on with her husband, photographer Jerry Redfern. When I approached her to talk about how the project is going, she told me she's got another one in the works, too, a documentary film as though one globe-spanning photography project weren't enough. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I wanted to start out by asking you about Bellyache. What is the project and which countries does it cover? Well, Bellyache is a project that's sort of been simmering in the background of much of our reporting for many years now, looking at the root causes of global hunger and um, possible solutions. And what we have found through the years... Um, in a lot of our reporting in developing countries, is that there seems to be a disconnect between um, the way that hunger and malnutrition are discussed in the West in terms of like how to feed the future global population of up to 9 billion people versus actually um, meeting the needs of hungry people on the ground. We've done most of our reporting in Southeast Asia. That's where we got to start on this. Although I've been doing some reporting in Africa and a bit in Central America as well. Do you have any plans to go back? Thanks to the International Women's Media Foundation, I have plans to go back to Africa in fall. And so I'll be doing some reporting there related to this project. And so what specifically will you be writing about in Africa? And which countries will you go to? Um, it's a trip to Uganda. And I'm hoping to talk to people who have been displaced by conflict. You know, part of this project is looking more at malnutrition. You know, when we, when we talk about global hunger, it's easy to think that, well, if we just increase food production, that's going to eliminate hunger. But so often, that isn't necessarily the case. Increased food production isn't necessarily going to reach the, the hungriest people on Earth. And there are so many cultural and sociological factors that prevent hungry people from getting food. And what are some of the different cultural attitudes towards hunger? Is there a difference that you've noticed between Uganda or other places you've been to in Africa and places in Southeast Asia? Actually, I find more similarities than differences. One example that comes to mind is the role of women in society in women's rights, which can be a big factor in malnutrition. 
So for example, you might have a family that's raising chicken and eggs, but they're not actually feeding their children those things. They're raising the chickens for sale. And sometimes that gets down to the fact that a woman doesn't have, um, say, enough power in her own family to say, no, I want to keep the chickens and I want to keep the eggs to feed to our kids. Sometimes, you know, maybe it's a husband who's saying, no, we should be selling this and making money. And I've seen that in different regions of the world. So this new film that you're working on now, it's an expansion of a book that you wrote in 2013 called Eternal Harvest. Um, right. So what is Eternal Harvest about? It is about the lasting effects of the U.S. bombing campaign in Laos in the 60s and 70s, which was the largest bombing campaign in history. Um, millions upon millions of tons of ordnance were dropped across the country, and a large percentage of those bombs never exploded. And so they're still in the ground, and they're still hurting and killing people today. You talked about ordnance, UXO, that's unexploded mm -hmm. ordnance. What does it look like? The most um, dangerous type today are called cluster munitions or cluster submunitions, and they're tiny bombs about the size of a softball. And um, even those can take on different appearances. So some of them look like little pineapples, and some of them look like balls. Today, they can look like rocks in the field, or they can look like toys to children. Of course, after 40 years of having all of these types of bombs and the remnants around them, people, people use that metal, and they turn the bombs into useful things. And so having them around a house, they also become familiar to children. How often do people encounter these unexploded bombs in the field or on the road or in the countryside? Every day. They're, they're still everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's a danger every single day, especially to, to farmers out in the field. So most of these events that we're talking about, the original bombing campaign happened in the 60s and the 70s. Why are they still dealing with aftershocks from 50 years ago? Well, if you look at maps of poverty in Laos and maps of where the bombings occurred, and this is true throughout the region, uh, they largely overlap. And that's not necessarily to say that the bombings caused that poverty, but there is a relationship there. And most of the people that we're talking about are subsistence farmers. And most of the people grow their own foods. They get their livelihoods from the earth. And this is an everlasting danger. Why did you decide to go back and revisit a pretty recent book and turn it into a totally different medium? We thought that we could just reach an expanded audience if we turn this into a documentary film and also, we're trying to especially appeal to an American audience, and we're following the only American who's actually on the ground clearing ordinance from Laos. And his name is Jim Harris. He's a retired school teacher and school principal from Wisconsin. And he lives in an area that has a very large Hmong and Lao population. And years ago, he started going to Laos to learn about this new community that was showing up in his own community in Wisconsin. That transitioned into him going to Laos every year to hire a clearance team and actually do the work of removing bombs. How many interviews or conversations did you have with um, villagers who are personally affected by these bombs? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's really hard to answer. I mean, we have talked to hundreds and hundreds of people over the years. A lot of those people are in our book. Um, we went and revisited some of those same people and talked to them again years later. And what's the response from Lao citizens to 
Americans specifically coming to talk to them about bombs that America dropped on their country? Well, you know, overwhelmingly, people are happy to talk to us and happy to have an American interested because so many of the people we have interviewed had never directly encountered Americans before, aside from any that they might have met during wartime. And sometimes, you know, people still harbor some resentment, but that isn't the overall feeling that we tend to get from people. Mostly it's that they want to share their story and that they want to send a message to Americans. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, Karen. It's been great, and it's good to hear about these new projects that you're working on. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another week and another episode of Smarty Pants with me, Stephanie Bastak. If you've got feedback for us, suggestions, critiques, unadulterated praise, let us know. We're on Twitter at The AMSCO, or you can email us at podcast at theamericanscholar.org. In the meantime, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 